Podcasting from the Star Group, home of the iconic Dressable Lions. This is Beyond the Known, the podcast that takes you a step beyond what you know about business. I'm your host, Paul M. Newberger, president of the Star Group. On today's episode of the Beyond the Known podcast, we are joined by Justice Daniel Kelly, a member of the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. Sir, great to have you here today. Paul, thanks so much for having me here. It's great to be with you. Absolutely. So let me start by asking a question that probably everybody is interested in. What's it like to serve on the Wisconsin State Supreme Court? (laughs) You know, that's probably one of my favorite questions. I cannot even begin to tell you what an honor and a privilege it is to serve on the Supreme Court of Wisconsin. And there are many reasons for this. I mean, part of this, the actual work of the court is something that I love deeply. I've been in love with the law since uh, I was a child, actually. I wanted to go into the law when I was in seventh grade. And, you know, and I learned through practice that there are parts of practice that I really enjoy. Uh, The research, the writing, the thinking deeply about the law. And serving on the Wisconsin Supreme Court is really just taking those three parts, the service to the law, bundling it into one place and calling it a job. And there's just really nothing like it. So, you know... It, but that's just one of the reasons it's a joy and a privilege. The other, and this is the one that I think has struck me most over the years, is what an honor it is to serve the people of Wisconsin on their court. And I say their court advisedly. You know, this is one of the things that I talked about over the years and through the campaign is um, the importance of remembering what the proper relationship is between those of us who are on the court, and really anyone in state government and the people of Wisconsin. You know, I was at church service a couple of years ago, right before Christmas. Wasn't at our regular church, but my wife knew the pastor's wife, and they invited us out because they were having several state office holders uh, participate in the service, and we were happy to go. And lovely service, and afterwards, I was in the foyer talking with some folks, and the pastor came up to greet me. And he's just a wonderful, gracious man. And he walks up to me, and he says, Justice Kelly, I want to thank you for being here with us today. It's great to have someone so important be a part of our service. And when he said that about importance, my my heart just dropped. And I looked at him and I said, you know, can we rewind the conversation just a few seconds? So, you know, I've often thought that there's an inverse relationship between where you rank and the number of bosses that you have. So, you know, the more bosses you have, the lower you rank, the fewer bosses you have, higher your rank. I said, Pastor, how many bosses do you have? Well, what do you think he said, Paul? One. He said, he got one. And I said, yeah, I got six million. <laughs> so between you and me, Pastor, you rank a whole heck of a lot higher than I do. And that really is the relationship between the people of Wisconsin and those of us on the court and anywhere else in state government. We are there as servants and real servants. Right? You know, we oftentimes, uh, we, we talk about members of government being public servants. Since I was young and I, I heard politicians refer to themselves as public servants, you know, I, maybe this is just me, but I quite often heard a little bit of patting on the back when they said that. I'm a public servant. Yeah, I'm kind of important, I'm kind of special. I'm a public servant. I think the proper way of looking at that is to take the two words separately, start with servant, And that's the operative one. That's the important one. That tells you what your relationship is to everyone else in the state. You are there to serve. They are legitimately 
your boss, you're answerable to them. The public part, you put that in front of servant, that just tells you how many bosses you have, right? So the higher up you go in government, the more bosses you have. And consequently, I think it becomes even more and more important for you to recognize that servant relationship that you're supposed to be having with the people of Wisconsin. So that's the thing that's been the honor for me, is being able to serve in this capacity, six million of our fellow Wisconsinites. And that has just been a joy and a privilege. You had mentioned your love of the law really started when you were in seventh grade. Is there a story behind that? And if so, we'd certainly love to hear it. Yeah, there wasn't an event that I could point to and say, well, this occurred and therefore I said, the law is for me. It was a growing awareness. And I think I got a fair amount of this from my folks. I think I got some of it too, just from the fact that I was one of seven children. And when you are one of seven, the idea of justice reigns paramount in your mind as you want to make sure that you get as much cake as your siblings and you have as many privileges as your siblings and that everyone is treated equally. Well, I think, you know, that childish impulse was added to by my folks' sense of justice. And they transmitted that to me at an early age. And so when I started looking around the world uh, at the way it was built, the way it's constructed, the way it works, I looked at the law. And and at that point, at a very naive level and, and, and not a terribly informed level, and yet could still see that law uh, is really the foundation for the security of our individual liberties and how important it is that we are able to maintain that and how distinctive that is in relation to world history, uh, that you would have this thing called the, the rule of law and that this is the thing that makes it possible for us to live in a free country and live our lives in peace and in prosperity. And so I, it was at that early age that I decided, I decided I wanted to go into law and be a lawyer. And it had always been with the idea of being a litigator, right? So it wasn't until I got to high school that I found out that there were lawyers who don't litigate. And I thought, how odd is that? Why would you be a lawyer and not litigate? But nonetheless, I discovered once I got into practice that between the litigators and the transactional lawyers, I've got an awful lot of respect for the transactional lawyers. You know, they've got a tough job. They got to figure out and they put together their deals and advise people on how to engage in business transactions. They've got to figure out what is the future going to look like and how do I accommodate for changes for things that we don't know about and how do I reduce all that to writing so we can have a good productive relationship. That takes a lot of skill. Litigation, you know, you walk in, there's something broken, you sweep up the pieces and you try to put it back together as well as you can. That's litigation. But I love that. And through my long practice in the law, before I came to the court, there were those parts of practice that really started to fluoresce as the things that I enjoyed the most about the law. Uh, And that was the research. It was the writing. It was the, you know, the intellectual aspect of it, the the discussion of these profound ideas, and then trying to determine in this case, uh, what does the law say? What does the law require of the parties? And figuring out a way forward, and then coming to the other side of the bench, uh, having those cases presented to us, and having our responsibility be, okay, well, how, what does the law say about which party wins uh, in this case? And it's all done in the context looking back over this great and grand history that we have, the, the development 
and understanding the work that we do. We stand on the shoulders of those who've come before us. Uh, and we are just trying to maintain that line of the rule of law so that we can continue to have a free and prosperous society. So I love those aspects of the law. And that really has been the vast majority of the work that I do in the court is in those areas. Over the course of your professional career, who would you say have been some of your judicial role models and why? There are a couple that I can point to easily. One is Justice Antonin Scalia. Just a phenomenal, let me step back for just a moment because really to get the full sense of Justice Scalia is to know him as a person. Now, I've met him on a couple of occasions. I think I've spoken five words with him. So I won't pretend to any greater knowledge of the man personally than that. But I've watched his career, pretty much his entire career, uh, and have followed his writings, his books, and uh, his personal reflections, and his work on the court. So I start with this. He's just a phenomenal man, great man of faith. And it is a faith that is alive and drove his life. It defined who he was. So as an individual, he was just a terrific person, great person to have as a, let's call it a long distance mentor. But then there was his legal mind. And I can't imagine that we've had anyone sharper on the Supreme Court in the history of the country than Justice Scalia. And so I looked at, I learned the law reading his analyses and the methodology that he used and the, the rigorous logic that he employed and the work that he did. And it was just, and his mind just came through so brilliantly in the writings. And if there's any, you know, with my work on the Supreme Court, my ambition was to at least have my opinions be some reflection of the style and the wit and the intellectual seriousness of Justice Scalia's. So, and he was just a beautiful writer. I mean, just without equal. There were, uh, over the years, you know, opinions would come down. Sometimes you agree with the results, sometimes you don't. And when you didn't agree with the results and you knew what the issues were and how they were being played out, one of my first things to do, and I found out later this was quite a, a common thing for folks to do in my position. The first thing you do is you go and you look at the Scalia opinion. If Scalia is in dissent, you read that first, and then you read the court's opinion, and then you can bear the court's opinion a little bit better after having read Scalia. He's had a monumental impact on the courts in the United States on the concept of the rule of law and how we apply that in the courts. And so he's had a major influence on me. The other would be Justice Thomas. And for some of the same reasons as a man, and again, you know, I think I've exchanged five words with him over the years, but he too, I watched closely and have listened in innumerable events in which he has spoken and What comes through clearly with respect to him is he too is a a man of deep faith. And you can see how that has contoured his life and how it has built into the man that he is. And it is just an amazing life story that he has. And then when we get to his legal mind, I love his mind uh, for for his attention to history and his encyclopedic grasp of it. So, you know, one of the things we do on the court is we look at what our precedents are. We look at how the law has brought us to the point uh, that we are. And a lot of that is influenced by the history and the, and the philosophy 
that brought the United States into being. And Justice Thomas was a serious student of that history, and he brought that to the work that he did. And so nearly any opinion you pick up that he authors, you will find, to a greater or lesser extent, echoes of history coming through in what he writes. And so what he, all of the work that he does is so firmly grounded uh, in the historical development of the law that every opinion you read is just an education. And I love that about him, and, and I'm so glad that he continues to serve on the court, and I hope that continues for a long, long time. On a personal level, and I want to take advantage of having you in the studio to ask you this question, I've always been interested in the difference, obviously, between the Supreme Court on the national level and, in this case, the Supreme Court at the state level. As our listeners will undoubtedly know, the President of the United States appoints justices to the Supreme Court, yet in Wisconsin, if you want to serve on the Supreme Court, obviously the governor can appoint you, but to serve a full term, you need to campaign. That's right. Do you prefer one route over the other? Do you like Do you think that all justices to the state Supreme Court or national Supreme Court should campaign? Do you like the current system? Do you think all justices should be appointed by a governor? I would certainly welcome your thoughts on that. Yeah, boy, that's a great question. And this is something we've been kicking around for a long, long time in the legal community. You know, in Wisconsin, we've never had anything but an elected judiciary. That was written into our constitution at the very beginning. And there are benefits and detriments to both ways of getting to the Supreme Court. Now, notwithstanding the results of April, you might be surprised to learn that I kind of like the campaign. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, just, and, and this is more on the personal level, I love the campaign. This was, which shocks me because I'm an introvert. And so I get energy from being alone. If I have to go outside my house, that's an energy cost for me. And it's one of the reasons why being a Supreme Court justice is, for me, it's been a perfect fit. I go in chambers, I spend my entire day alone reading and writing, and every once in a while we come out on the bench and we hear arguments and I go back to chambers and I read and I write and I love that. But I discovered this past year that, that I actually love campaigning, at least 98.5% of it. And the 98.5% I love is going around this state of ours, talking to our fellow Wisconsinites, reporting to them as my bosses what I've been doing with the authority that they have lent to me. And, you know, there's a, before we get back to the methodologies, I want to tell you this. There's there's a little bit of a story behind why I love serving the people of Wisconsin so much. And it has to do with when I first came here. I'm not native to Wisconsin. I came here when I was 18 years old did most of my growing up years in Colorado. I came out here at 18 to go to Carroll College and came out a few days early because I heard there was some good fishing in Wisconsin. Turns out that's true. So I wanted to do a little fishing before school started. So I I ended up at a a park in Waukesha County and the campsite was full, totally full. But through one thing and another, I ended up spending the weekend with a family from Sheboygan Falls, young family, two young children. And they were the most welcoming, kind, generous people you can imagine. I mean, and these were the first people in Wisconsin that I'd ever met. They didn't know me from Adam, and yet they opened up their campsite. They shared it with me. They shared their dinner with me. They shared their fellowship with me. They spent pretty much the entire weekend introducing me to what it means to be a Wisconsinite. I just fell in love with the people of Wisconsin at that point. 
So anyway, long way around to saying that's one of the reasons I love the campaigning is because I got to go out and spend so much time with them all around the state. And they were so generous and warm and inviting me into their homes and their businesses and their clubs and, and just making me feel welcome everywhere that I went. So that part I loved. The debates, not so much. That's the one and a half percent of campaigning I didn't really enjoy. But the rest of it was just wonderful. But that's the personal level. On a philosophical level, I think there's a great deal of importance in it being an elective position because it requires us you know, it's a 10-year term, so it's a very long term. But at least it requires us every 10 years to remember who's my boss and to go back to them, report to your boss, this is what I have done with the authority that you have lent to me. Do you approve? Have I done a good job? Have I been faithful to the Constitution? Have I been faithful to the law that your legislators have created? And for members of the court especially, who spend their days being called your honor, it is really important to remember who's the boss, right? So I think that's one of the great benefits of, of an elected judiciary. There are some drawbacks. And take this uh, for what it's worth, given the, you know, the, 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 the personal effect that this had on, on me. But this campaign that we just had, our election was on the same day as the Democratic presidential primary. And there was, no, there was no contested Republican presidential primary. And that changes the dynamics of the, the race an awful lot. The state is a, uh, is a deeply divided state politically. And even though the office of the Supreme Court Justice is nonpartisan, and you know, in, in, in when I campaign, I don't say that I'm a Republican or a Democrat, but yet the campaign, it obtains a political overtone because of the presidential race happening on the same day. So the unfortunate part is an office that should be nonpartisan, it should be the result of a nonpartisan campaign, has that partisan influence into it. And, and that really uh, has a significant impact on, on whether the will of the people is going to be accurately displayed on a nonpartisan level. And so I think that's problematic because it suggests that the work of the court should be and that you should run as a political candidate, a partisan political candidate, when you really should not. So in some ways, having an appointed judiciary gets around that, but still, you'll never actually get rid of the, policy, the political aspect entirely in the process by which you come to the court. Now, after you get to the court, everything should be non-political, not only non-partisan, but non-political entirely, because our job is just to apply the law. But even in an appointed system, you're still going to an elective body, the Senate, to be confirmed. And you know, that's our federal system. The president nominates, the Senate confirms. And, and as we've seen, the uh, partisan political nature comes out in the confirmation hearings and in the votes. And so there's never, you can never really get away from it entirely. Now, you know, the world is changing and the confirmation process it's becoming much more partisan than it used to be. You know, Justice Scalia was confirmed, I believe, by a unanimous vote of those present uh, in the Senate. And that's not all that long ago. Well, okay, maybe it is. It's going on 30 years ago. But that's, a, I think, a, a demonstration of how much things have changed. You know, Justice Scalia, when he was appointed to the Supreme Court, he was known to be a constitutionalist jurist. So, 
it's not like he surprised people once he got to the Supreme Court and they found out, oh, wow, he's a textualist. Who knew, right? Everybody knew this beforehand. And yet, that's the reception that he got in the Senate. Now you fast forward to some of the Supreme Court um, nominations recently, and you see just an incredibly sharply divided Senate as it breaks down along partisan lines in that process. So even that process is starting to resemble, from a political perspective, it's starting to resemble elections a lot more. So there are advantages, disadvantages to each method of selecting the judiciary, but there's no way to ever get away from the political aspect of the appointment. That's why it makes it so much more important that once you're there, that you understand that your job has nothing to do with politics at all. Our job is to apply the law as it exists, not as we might wish it to be, but as actually as it was written and adopted either in the Constitution by the people of Wisconsin or in the statutes by the legislators. And we are to do that just according to reason and the text of the law. And we take all of our personal views and personal preferences, we leave them outside the courtroom door. We don't pick those up again until we're done with our work. So I think that's the real key there is regardless of how you come to the court, once you're there, it's an entirely non-political job. And you had said, as you just mentioned, that once you're appointed, once you start on the state Supreme Court, it should be apolitical, that that should be the case. I think for our listeners, depending on their opinion of that body, they may have a certain view of the Supreme Court that others may not hold. If it should be the case that once a justice is appointed, that they should be apolitical, do you feel from your experience that that is indeed the case? Have you seen that the justices are pretty good at putting politics aside, or do you feel that that can still be problematic at times? Yeah, it can still be problematic. I won't name any names, but there are a few members of the court that allow their politics to influence their decision-making. And I think that's unfortunate, and I think that it is problematic given the oath that we take and the responsibility that we have. You know, now, having said that, you know, we're all human beings, the court. We all have our politics. We all have our views. The key is what you do with it and how you control for that. And in what I've developed is it to, to ensure that my personal politics don't come into the equation is I have a very logical way of analyzing a case and writing it. And I depend on that logic to make sure that the politics don't come in. You know, so every case you look at, there's the law that controls the case. You start with there, that's your premises. And then you use rigorous logic to move from that all the way down to the conclusion. And if you get done, you can look back and see an unbroken chain of logic connecting the conclusion to the premises. That's your guarantee that your personal politics haven't played any role in the process. Because as it turns out, logic doesn't care about your politics, doesn't care about your emotions, doesn't care about your feelings, right? Simply is. So that's the tool, and I think that's what we need to concentrate on. Now, we're all fallible, of course, which is one of the reasons why there are seven of us and not just one. So when I write my opinion, before it gets released, it gets circulated amongst all the members of the Supreme Court. And they have their opportunity to provide feedback. And they say, well, you know, I, I think you got this wrong, or, you know, I don't think this was uh, properly reasoned, or whatever it might be. So when I get done with my work and I build that logical chain, 
I sent it out to my other, to the other members of the court to test it. And, and, and I can guarantee you that there will be people on the court who are very heavily vested in making sure that there are no errors in that. And that if they see anything, they will be sure to tell me, hey, you missed a logical step here, or this conclusion does not flow from the premises. And then that gives me the opportunity to go back and look at it and say, well, you know, was I just assuming something to be true and didn't say it out loud in the, uh, in the opinion? I need to fix that. You know, maybe I did make a logical mistake and we need to address that, change how it's reasoned. So that process, if you approach it with the idea of ensuring that you come to a logical conclusion, one that squeezes out your personal politics, we have that kind of process in place where you can do that. And at the end, as close as you can to, you know, from a group of seven imperfect people, you can get to a conclusion that uh, reflects what the law is and our, not our personal politics. But there are some who are not committed to that and, um, and who will use their politics affirmatively to influence where the decisions go. And I, I think that's unfortunate and, uh, and it's out of character, I think, with the role of the court. I think a number of individuals remember probably quite vividly the confirmation hearings of Justice Brett Kavanaugh as he was in consideration at the time for joining the U.S. Supreme Court and some of the things that transpired during that process. I wonder, Dan, I know you're a man of great humility, which is obvious from this interview, as somebody who could possibly potentially be in line for an appointment like that at some day, do you think how those proceedings went deter qualified good jurists from considering a nomination to the Supreme Court? Or do you think what we just went through is a bit of an anomaly in that regard? Well, thank you first for the compliment. There are a whole lot of folks in this country who would be, who I would put ahead of me as candidates for the United States Supreme Court. But I will say this, I think it does have a deterrent effect on good candidates coming forward. And it's not just the, the federal process where your life is just opened up before the entire country and people can come in and make completely unfounded allegations about you and, and be subject to humiliation based on lies. I think it's entirely logical for well-accomplished people to look at that and say, you know what, I've got a good position, I'm comfortable where I'm at, I like my job, no way. I'm not exposing myself to that. You know, in elections can be the same way. One of the things that I've been cognizant of over the years is the way that people campaign for the Supreme Court and what's in bounds and what's out of bounds as you do that. And one of the things I've tried to accomplish over my career in the law is encouraging good people to seek a position on the court. And it turns out that's hard to do. And one of the reasons that that's hard to do is because of the way that campaigns or confirmation proceedings have gone and good people look at that and say, I want no part of that. I could sit here and I could just in a heartbeat, I could rattle off a dozen names of people who I think would be outstanding members of the Wisconsin Supreme court. And I also know that not a single one of them would do this because of what you go through in a campaign. And, you know, and I had that this past year, you know, that one and a half percent of the campaign I didn't like, it was that. It was when people come, uh, come up and they say things that simply aren't true about you. And this is, 
you know, to me, and I think to a lot of other folks who would consider this, they have the same kind of reaction I do. Uh, and it's this, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't come from a family of a great deal of means. Um, you know, my dad, uh, he sometimes worked two or three jobs at a time to make sure that we had a roof over our head and food on the table. And, and I still distinctly remember when I was a young teenager, one day he pulled me aside and he said, Dan, when I am done in this life, I'm not going to have much to leave you, but I promise you this, I will leave you a good name. And he was as good as his word. When he was done with his life, I had a, a replica Rodin statue and a broken pocket watch from him. But I also had a good name. And so as I went through the campaign and I saw some of the things that people were saying that simply were untrue, that, that affected me deeply because it was attacking the legacy that my dad left for me, that good name, the same name that I want to pass down to my children. So I think there is, it does have a deterrent effect. And uh, I think one of the things that I will continue doing is trying to make sure that the campaigns are conducted on, a, on an intellectual level, and an honest level, so that we can continue recruiting good people to the court. So that's gonna be part of my project going forward. So as difficult as that may be for people to attack you, probably to some degree on personal terms and attack the good name that your father left you, how do you deal with that? How did you cope with that? And I think it's one thing if you're running an organization, if you're a C-suite executive and your employees disagree with you, sometimes I suppose those can get rather personal, but it's not in a wide open public forum like a statewide election to the state Supreme Court must be. So how did you cope with that? How did you deal with that? And how did you continue to soldier on despite that? It is hard, but it's, for me, it was simply gutting through it. Well, it was two things, gutting through it as a matter of honor and duty. So I remember back when Governor Walker appointed me to the court, uh, and, and towards the end of our conversation, he had noted that I had been the subject of some news stories already before I was appointed. They were going after me personally. And he says, so what do you think of that? <laughs> I said, well, you know, sometimes, you know, you just ultimately, you just have to decide, are these my beliefs or are they not? And if they are, then you hold to them no matter what reaction that you get and no matter the things say about them. And he chuckled a little bit and he says, yeah, I know. And, and he certainly did. I mean, he went through very much the same thing, uh, but to a much greater extent uh, than I ever have. But the duty and honor part of it is this. So I was appointed to the seat because the governor was looking for someone with a particular judicial philosophy, someone who would apply the law as it exists, who would not incorporate their personal politics or personal feelings into the law. We call that in the legal field, we call that textualism, right? Uh, and that was the reason I was appointed to the bench. And I felt that it was my duty to the people of Wisconsin to ensure that they had someone on the bench who was going to be faithful to their law, who was going to be faithful to their constitution, someone who would hold faith with them uh, as my boss. And so although it was hard to hear those things uh, that people would say, I looked at that duty and I said, well, this is something I agreed to do and I've undertaken this challenge and, uh, you know, once I've accepted it, I can't walk away from that. 
And then from the perspective of honor, this is a matter of, of truth. You can't allow folks to come out and, um, and say things that are just flatly untrue and just walk away from that. There is truth that needs to be defended. And the part you have to separate out is, you know, it can't be vindictive. It can't be revenge. It can't be about me, but it does have to be about truth. And so, so when I would reflect on that at the end of a difficult day, you know, look at those two things uh, and you keep pushing. But all of that would have been completely insufficient without my faith. And there's no way that, that my wife or my children or I would have been able to go through this last year with some of the things that were being said uh, without being able to turn our eyes and our hearts to God and say, look, he knows what is true and the race is in his hands and our responsibility uh, is to follow him as faithfully as we can, put our trust in him and ultimately find our ultimate significance in what he thinks of us and not in what others think of us. Now that's not always easy to do because, you know, the voices are incessant and they are actually out loud and they're in print. And uh, that's where where it becomes really important to have that faith background and turn to God in those times and say, all right, look, I understand you're the source of truth. And and my job is to follow you, serve the people of Wisconsin honestly, honorably, and well. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what people are saying about me. When When they say untrue things, it just doesn't matter. So it's all about keeping your eye fixed, what the prize actually is. And if you can do that, you can get through it. Doesn't mean that it's easy, but you can get through it. I have to imagine that being a part of a campaign, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things to juggle, a lot of important decisions that have to be made. Obviously, there's many individuals associated with a campaign. What leadership lessons did you learn along the way from taking part in a campaign such as yours? I think probably one of the greatest leadership lessons I learned is when to let others lead. So this is the first campaign that I was a part of. And consequently, I mean, I've followed campaigns pretty much my entire adult life. But it's one thing to follow a campaign from the outside, and it's a completely different one when you are the principal in a campaign. So here's the deal. As the principal, this is your campaign. This is your name on the line. This is your responsibility. And it is for you, in that sense, to lead. But I think one of the key pieces of leadership is knowing when you don't know something and allowing someone else to pick that up and run with it. Now that's a difficult thing for me because I'm a control freak and that has served me really well in my legal career because practicing law is about being a control freak. And the more you are, the better you, the more functional and effective that you are, but you can't lead that way. So the real key for me the key lesson for me was finding those people who have the talents that I don't and then deferring to them uh, as they exercise those talents. And, and if you were to talk to my campaign team, they would tell you that this was a difficult lesson for me to learn. <laughs> so it took me quite some time to get comfortable. And I never really did get entirely comfortable with that. But eventually I got to a point where I'm like, okay, look, I've got these people here for a reason. 
and they're really smart people. They're really capable people. They know what they're doing. I just need to let them do their thing. And so I think we settled into a kind of a comfortable relationship. Once we got further into the campaign, they understood my need for information. And if I had the information, I was more comfortable letting them go and do the things that, that they're really good at. But I think that was the big thing for me is just knowing when to let go and uh, let others do their thing. Anything else, Dan, that maybe we didn't discuss that you wished we would have? Any other anecdotes you want to share, information you think our listeners would find a value while we still have time? No, I think that pretty much covers it. I mean, I could, to your chagrin, I could go on and on. There's no, but the, one of the things that I learned over the last year is when to stop talking, my campaign manager, he was just, the thing I think probably that drove him nuts the most about me is when we would do presentations and, you know, it's, you know, you have maybe 15 minutes uh, to do a presentation. And I would always, I would go, I would always go long. Some places you go to, you've got five minutes and, and I would go long and I'm like, look, I can't say hello in five minutes. <laughs> and just the way my mind works, it, there is, you know, it's linear. So there's, you know, you go from one step to the next. And for me, this is the way my writings work. And so it's the way I think everything should work is each of the pieces is important. You got to lay down the piece before you can get to the next step. And so when I do my presentations, I do the same thing. Okay. I got to do that. I got to explain to you all the things behind this conclusion. And as it turns out in a campaign, what they're after is the conclusion. And you know, you don't really need to go into old backstory, but we came to it a modus vivendi on that uh, as well as we got through the campaign. And, uh, you know, they realized that, you know, at some point that this is, for me, doing a campaign is not a, a rah-rah thing. I mean, I see, because it, it's just not me. There are others who do that and they do a great job of it and I've got no problem with that. But that's them and they can do them, but I can't. Mm -hmm. For me, it's about the pedagogical aspect of it. One of the things I, I said throughout the campaign was that I considered this kind of a, a memory tour. Let's remember who the people of Wisconsin are. Remember what your place is. You're the bosses. You are the owners of all of the authority that goes into creating and maintaining our government. It's all you. So, you know, you know oftentimes um, when I would do presentations at court, and we have school groups come through all the time, I'd oftentimes ask them, you know, what they thought the most important political office in the state was. And some would say the governor, some would say the legislators, some of them want to make me feel good. They'd say the judiciary. And I said, well, you know, those are all good answers, but there's actually one political office that's actually more important than all of those put together. And that's the office of citizen, right? This is because this is where all of the authority and all the power comes from. And so when I was doing the campaign, what I wanted to do was remind people that in this whole process, I'm not the important one. You guys are. You're the owners of all that authority. This all belongs to you. This is you deciding what you want your state to be. And we're the ones that you may choose or may not choose. And if you do, that means, you know, that we've descended to the level of servant. And that really is the way that I looked at this. You know, when I put on the black robe, I'm actually taking a step down because now I'm answerable to 6 million people. When I take it off, I rejoin all the rest of my fellow Wisconsinites as one of the bosses. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that was my whole approach to this. So campaign appearances were about 
trying to convey all of those ideas in five minutes. And that never worked. But as it turns out, it was received well. And that was part of the joy of the campaign is getting around and, and helping people remember the importance of their role and how infinitely more important that is than, than what I was actually running for. Mm-hmm. So anyway, like I said, I could go on all day. And I well, shouldn't. it's not every day we get a justice on the state Supreme Court that visits us in the studio. So certainly appreciate the detailed information. I'm, I've got a particular interest in this. Not only am I a fan of politics, but my uncle Mark, he's the twin of my father, recently passed away. He was one of the U.S. Marshals for Sandra Day O'Connor. Oh, really? And he did some work with John Roberts briefly as well. So, yeah, I've always been fascinated by the courtship. He had a lot of really nice stories to tell about Justice O'Connor. She and he actually got fairly close there at one point. So, yeah, love to learn a little bit more about what you do. So I appreciate all the information that you shared. Justice Daniel Kelly of the Wisconsin State Supreme Court, it was wonderful to have you on the Beyond the Known podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Well, it is absolutely my pleasure. Thanks so much for doing this. It's been a joy. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Known with Paul M. Newberger. If you like our show and want to know more, check us out at stargroup.com. That's S-T-A-R-R-Group.com slash podcast. We're also available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.